Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Dean had my surgery Tuesday. Okay. So he's not here today. Okay. And this one. Yeah, I'll tell him. All right, well, let's begin. Let's right. pray. Blessed Lord has caused all holy scripture written for our learning. Grant who may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word we may embrace, never hold fast. Blessed hope of everlasting life, which has given us in our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Morning to all. What can I get you? Our online crew, especially Connie. Is it recording? Huh? Is it recording for us? It's recording. Okay, good. I just usually see the record thing. I don't know. I'm just. Um, I see it here. Okay, so perfect. So be careful Facts what you trying. say. I know. Uh, <laughs> I know, right? Any heresy, especially size, could be punished. So. Um, I don't think. All right. Well, we. We um, are planning to finish First Peter today. Uh, I think we were at um, four, uh, we had the last section to do, to go yet with the 12. And it, it just struck me that I think that going through Peter is not a unique revelation, but when you understand what he's doing, it just highlights that a lot of of the gospel is understanding what story you're living in. Because mm-hmm. if you don't understand what story you're living in, then you don't understand the goal, and you don't understand what it is that gets you to the goal. Mm-hmm. So, um, Peter, in portraying um, the church as pilgrims and strangers, a wandering people, uh, without a homeland, moving towards the promised land is one way he characterizes the story. And um, that if you live in that narrative that you don't have any ownership, but you're moving towards where you actually want to get to go, that will cause you to make decisions, cause us to make decisions that are less connected to now and are more oriented towards um, and uh, the other another aspect of the story we talked about as being um, living stones being built up as a temple we're the temple of God God lives in us mm-hmm. and therefore um, if we are a dwelling place of God that that provides a kind of there's a sort of consummation of that of, of God dwelling in us in what um, Revelation refers to as the heavenly marriage, but it it means that being um, faithful to the God to whom we're connected is the most important thing. And he talks about our priesthood, where we are interceding. Um, we have this priestly role in terms of prayer, being right in God's presence, and. Um, it's come into the last couple sections in the idea of suffering, that um, since we're a pilgrim people who are moving towards an ultimate goal or telos in Christ, the primary um, aim of behavior in the moment is ultimate justification, is to receive a verdict from God of justified, vindicated. Which means that there are times, and this is going to, we're going to get this again today, there are times when we won't get the vindication we want in the temporal circumstances we're in. And what Peter's been very clear about is the main thing to focus on is, is maintaining your own righteous standing, not repaying the evil with the evil, maintaining the good. So that when Christ comes and all these sort of storylines are brought to their fulfillment, you can stand, um, enjoy, enjoy. And the temptation to move away from that eternal perspective into a temporal one, where what's happening now is the most important thing, is a temptation to move into a different story. 
and it's a, it's, it's a serious, serious temptation. It may be the primary temptation of what we, what we can think of as the modern world um, that would be everything maybe from the Enlightenment on till now. There's a um, Canadian philosopher named Charles Taylor who wrote a book called A Secular Age, but he talks about the migration from the historic, the historic sense of a um, higher meaning of reality and a higher life and a higher sense of time, how we've moved into just we're living in time and we um, assess everything in our lives by, by the, uh, the highest goal of what he refers to as ordinary human flourishing. Mm-hmm. You're doing well, you're healthy, you're, you're prospering, kids are great, that, that's it. There's no higher meaning to that. Mm-hmm. And if you think about our culture, I don't think anybody exclusively adopts that, but it's an overarching narrative. And, and the main problem from this perspective of faith is it tends to um, displace the narrative of faith from its central role in which we are living in Christ, moving towards the telos of the kingdom, enduring whatever suffering there is here now um, with the goal of remaining faithful. It tends to shift the narrative into, no, we're really focused on living in time being healthy, happy, prosperous. And God now is displaced from that central thing. He becomes the helper. He does, he's not removed from the story, but God help me, heal me, make me prosperous, make me happy. And a lot of disappointment with God that people will uh, express relates to the fact that God isn't doing his job to make us happy in the secular frame. And that's, I just, I, I don't want to push that, it's just a reality of what I've seen in faith. It's that narrative shift, rather than viewing this world in terms of life in Christ, is a narrative shift, we begin to, to view life in Christ in terms of this world. And we, we just have to be aware of that. Um, and, and, and Peter, therefore, is really focusing in on this story in which we're living as a pilgrim people, as a place where God dwells, as a holy priesthood with a higher destiny of calling. So, with that, let's jump in today at chapter 4, verse 12. And Peter ought to know, by the way. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because they say, who am I? He says, you are the Christ. And then a few minutes later, he's like, no, you can't be crucified. Right. So he was, and he, then Jesus was like, get behind me, Satan, to him. Right? And so he he was showing both of those worlds in a well, way. Yeah, and, 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 and what was the big mystery that, that uh, is revealed there is revealed in our uh, Quinquagesima Gospel, um, where um, the, the, Jesus says, Behold, we go to Jerusalem, and all the things written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. He'll be mocked and scourged and beaten and they'll kill them and the third day he rise again. And then what it says about the disciples is they didn't understand anything about what he was saying. It was hidden from them. Because what's hidden from them when you're when you think of faith mainly in terms of the temporal triumph of Israel is how somebody's gonna bring about the prosperity of Israel with that with um with um by dying, by, by being defeated. How do you win by losing, mm-hmm. essentially? And this is something, but if you he think didn't. about that, that that's the, what's that? He didn't lose, though. He, mm-hmm. Well, he did lose temporally. There's no question temporally. he lost. Oh, in, in, the, in, the secular, in the secular story, Jesus lost. Yes. And I, mm-hmm. I don't know that people are are fully aware sometimes when we're worshiping Jesus, worshiping a 30-year-old man who was judicially executed in, in, the, in the greatest travesty of justice the world has ever known. And we just kind of miss that narrative sometimes. So what Peter is saying, this is your story. You may not be called, although some of us are in other places, like in Africa now, where people are dying for, these, for, for Christ, um, 
in other places. We may not be called to do that, but, but we're called to aim for that victory we've already won, but that victory comes outside of, of, of time, outside of the time of this world. I'm going to say it comes outside of time, that'd be a false statement. It's a whole <laughs> meditation on time, which I'm still entering into myself, because sometimes I think eternity is the absence of time. I'm not sure that's entirely true. The, the resurrection happened in time. It happened on the third day after he rose. It, it somehow opened up a new dimension of reality to human existence, but it does have a temporal element to it. But notice something about the resurrection. We get there, I'm already thinking about Easter sermons, but uh, it was like, how many people saw the resurrection? A few. A few. Because unless you have eyes to see beyond time, not just to see it, but to get what it is, you get the two guys on the road to Emmaus, they walk with Jesus, the risen Christ, for seven miles and have no idea who he is, the risen Christ. So part of the part of Luke's point is knowing the resurrection is not just looking at the guy, it is perceiving a larger truth of the uh, necessity of the, of the cross and passion as bringing about the resurrection. So, um, and it, it brings up a good point that you can apply to today, too, is that the disciples didn't get it with, your, with Christ. The, the, the two men on the road to Emmaus didn't get it until, it, until they un, did. Until they did. <laughs> and like us, we should persevere, even if we don't get it, because we'll eventually get it. Well, there, there's there's a um, interesting contrast. If you're interested in kind of a, a book about this kind of biblical phenomenon, there's a commentary on Mark's gospel called Conversion in the New Testament, and he contrasts the sudden, dramatic Pauline conversion mm -hmm. on the Damascus Road with what he sees as Mark's betrayal. This is gradual conversion of densely dense apostles <laughs> when finally they, they get there and I think I think I think that ha I think that's why in the Christian life we do see conversion as a continuous thing as an ongoing phenomenon it doesn't just happen once we're converted all the time and we grow into because we all you know, come Jesus he died he, you know, he's, we know there's a large life but then we come to know it in the intersection of our actual lives in the world, as we pray, as we experience joy and tragedy and sadness and, and connection, and we see how God works. As we participate in the story, both the suffering and the grace, that's how we begin to see. And the idea of what this thing is becomes a living reality of it. it it's it's to, and this is very important that to know God in the Bible is not, this is another modern error. We think that to know means to have memorized the information about. No. Um, <laughs> and that's a big Christian idea. I, mm -hmm. yeah, you, you believe, what do you, I believe in the creed, and the, mm -hmm. these tests of faith, and you know, we stand for this. And it's like, but those are, um, that's not knowing God any more than um, knowing any of you is knowing the facts about where you live, knowing character statements about you. The only way to know you would be to to like have a relationship where we kind of went back and forth and learned what it was like to live in relationship. So our, our conversion grows as we stay in that relationship. And that's why um, persevering faith is so important. Because the main danger to our growth is we might abandon the relationship. Mm -hmm. oh, God, I can't what's doing that God's doing is I'm out of here. <laughs> you know, and, and you can see, um, in a sense, even the commentary on Judas this way. He didn't get it. And he just I think I think actually Judas not only didn't get it, I think he actually despised the humility of our Lord at the Last Supper. Mm -hmm. He must have. And and wanted the revolution, and, and you see that you see that in the 
as we import into the narrative of faith and the truth, they they bring this this sort of temporal desire for everything to to um, you know to to be a certain way into the church. That's going to be gradually crucified in us, and it's going to give way to an understanding that there is actually a larger, more powerful reality we're living in that is internally transforming and doesn't go away with death. But that's a, yeah, please. I, I have a question about relationships. Um, I have a hard time getting too intimate with people for fear that they'll think, well, it's none of your business, you're sure nosy, and, you know, you, I don't want to share that with you. Well, I think, I think genuine intimacy develops over time as we develop trust. Um, and I, I think it's it's a problematic to um, to insist on that trust happening too soon. I, I don't know if I told you a story. I still remember this friend I had in high school. He had his issues. But go to a party, you meet some girl. You start telling her, like, oh, yeah, all the stuff back. It's like, dude, <laughs> for 30 seconds, you know, what this is, this is a, and this is TMI. And, um, but if you think about a good relationship, I mean, I see this in church, and actually, I've learned, um, I've learned a paradoxical lesson about people coming to church. I've had people come all excited. Oh, this is great. I love what you're doing. I'm in. And like six months later, it's like, where'd that guy go? Yeah. Uh -huh. And then you have some guys that kind of show up, and they sit in the back right pew, kind of look. Yeah. <laughs> they kind of hang out, and they kind of get in. I'll tell you who, who epitomizes this is Father John. He just showed up men's group, and say anything, hung out, got more involved, got more involved. And he, because he was checked, he was, but you develop something. And when people kind of um, get deeply rooted over time, then we trust each other. We can, we can have more honesty. You can have just as much healthy honesty as you develop the relational trust to develop. And I think also we talk about this in our various programs of formation that um, we also have to learn how to be trustworthy people with whom people can share things and have that be safe with us. Uh, and that's, that takes um, time to develop because sometimes we're not aware of we want to get to know you in this, but we're not aware of how much anxiety we bring into that. Mm -hmm. And I just, yeah, please tell me. It's more like, I need to know. I'm anxious if I don't know. Mm -hmm. And a real relationship, and this is characterized by God, who's saying, you've got a lot of time. <laughs> and, and so, you know, what I've learned in, in, um, in healthy relational spaces is, as you cultivate it, and you know, maybe somebody has something to say, but if you don't feel like saying it, don't say it. You say it when you're ready to say it, because a lot of because yeah, this is we're going far afield here. But I want to say something here that that relates to um, to trauma, since a lot of our um, distrust comes from things we've experienced in the past, which have a, a traumatic element. Um, when when we experience trauma, somebody made us do something we didn't want to do, or something happened to us we didn't consent to. So when somebody wants to share that, it's very important that we don't like, so, okay, tell me. It's like, I, I'm just like, it triggers that same, and that's why a healthy communal space is where it's possible to be honest and open, but it's not required to be honest and open. And, and the, honest, the honesty that develops is something people actually generally, because we want to be known. We're afraid to be known. It's, it's the... It's the tension between we want to be together in one, but we're really afraid of it. This is like being close to God. Yeah, we're going to go with God, but then we go, oh, he's like holy. Then, yeah. oh, maybe this. Well, it's like the relationship between a priest and a confess, confessee. Is that a word? Um, you know, you know a whole lot more about me than I know about you. Yeah, I mean, I, but I, I would always say even, the, even, even honoring the, the, the reality of confessional um, relational trust can't be just developed there. 
And and if we don't see the sacraments confession is mostly transaction, I would say even in in the ministry of <clears throat> of hearing confessions in our tradition, almost nobody brings a surprise. We're we're way more known than we think we are. God, you know, don't you think what like most people know us more than we think they know us. Mm-hmm. And the great revelation we're gonna bring is like duh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so occasionally there, you know, I mean it's confession is good. Occasionally we it snuck out in a way that we really want to just kind of needs a, a private dealing with, but our overarching stories and sins and weaknesses are not a giant secret to those who know They're us. They're not new. Yeah. They're not original sins. No. <laughs> so all right, we gotta go on because I promise to finish yeah, the first theater so we have to have today. So anyways. Into the narrative of chapter twelve. So he says, Beloved do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you. So they're suffering. Um, and this, these are dispersed Christians, um, some Jewish Christians, some Gentile converts, existing as minority communities dispersed in the Roman world, having no real uh, recognition either from the local Jewish community, which would have given some dispersed Jews some kind of communal security, and the Roman government, that you're, you're sort of at no place are you at home. And so the fiery trial is probably some persecution, probably just... And we got to remember something. I think it's really important. These early Christians, they didn't have church. Then building they went to, there weren't programs. <laughs> you know, they, they got together for the Eucharist on Sunday um, and in persecuted times, sometimes at like 5 a.m. So no one would see them. And they, they had a social network that developed because they were close. But this was something to saying this is different than like we even talked about during the We can't go to church on. It's being there weren't any churches. You were the church. And, and that's, that's that thing, we'll get into that. But, but so, the fiery trial, which is to try you, so some strange thing were happening to you. Which, which means, trial is consistent with the story in which you're living. It, it's consistent with the narrative of faith, that you will face trials. Because Christ faced trials. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that is, and how do we partake of Christ's sufferings in our trials? How, how do trials become partaking of Christ's sufferings? Well, <clears throat> as Christ suffered, and we're hidden in Christ, there's that analogy and reality. And as we suffer, He's in us, he is a spirit, and so there's that reality. So it's the reality of both things, <laughs> that it's a communal suffering. <laughs> now, so so and I think that's, that's a, a, a really great way of framing the kind of organic reality of it. Um, what I wanted to kind of highlight, so what, what would make something you suffer not part of Christ's suffering? When you do it outside of, of being thankful to God, when you sin. <clears throat> so if so, you suffer and are responding to it unfaithfully, yeah, yeah. all of a sudden, what you're doing is really participating in that, is right. participating in the grumbling, complaining pattern of the world. So I, I guess what, what I was thinking there is, to the extent you partake of Christ's sufferings, that is, you're holding on to our Lord in the midst of your pain, you're trying as best as you can. Wrestling, this is, you know, we stumble and fall. We're trying the best we can to be faithful in the face of it, not to repay the evil with the evil, but with the good and enduring. <clears throat> then we are partaking of Christ's sufferings. But if um, Joe offended me, and I immediately got on and told Jack and John about Joe, <laughs> spread the go rumor, all of a sudden, I've repaid in kind, and now I'm just, and this kind of goes on to say here, um, um, so let's continue on to say, it says, um, 
So when you partake of Christ's suffering, for his point is, if we faithfully endure in whatever pain it is we're in, and there are different variations of this. Sometimes it's just holding on to Christ when we're all alone and don't feel like anyone's around. That's, and there's a, there's a temptation to prayer. Sometimes it is visible, palpable opposition. Sometimes it is um, circumstances in life that just have not gone the way we want them. This is not what we thought. This is not what we saw coming. However it is, whatever it is that life has placed us, the goal to, to, to partake in Christ's sufferings is to try to face it. What does faithfulness to Christ look like where God has, where Christ has placed me? And then if we participate in that, if we, if we struggle uh, to, to hold on faithfully in the midst of that, Peter's saying that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. It's like, because you're going to get, yeah, I was fighting for the right thing. See? It wasn't the loser. It was the winner. Which, which, which is, I think, um, I think it is because Jesus says there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I think it's those who are embittered about what happened and always repaying. When the final revelation of, 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 of they're just fighting their own battle and they, they wouldn't enter into this, they're still complaining. God's an enemy. And, and that's, that's the, that is the essential psychology of the evil one who never, who always wants to blame something or someone for the fact that things aren't the way they are. And I think this is really a big thing, um, this whole blaming thing. Finding, and the blaming, it doesn't mean people don't do wrong things and there won't be responsibility for those wrong things in the judgment. It means that um, part of, of the power of life in Christ is there's nothing in this world that can take it from you. So if you want to say you're unhappy because any, you, you, we need to reorient and understand that contentedness comes from Christ being with us wherever we are. And if we think someone can take that from us, we don't really understand it. It doesn't mean it won't be painful and a struggle in the ebb and flow of life. And that's why we, we've talked about how joy and sadness can coexist. You can be in a, in a, in a time of grieving, but as St. Paul, it would be not as though without hope, You, because Christ is there grieving. But even, even as when you're celebrating, Christ is there too, and the celebration has that note of gratitude. Either one removed from its setting in Christ, one becomes despair, the other becomes a mere debauchery or whatever, you know. It's always, everything is, is, finds its true value and meaning in relationship to the kingdom. And Christ is with us in all things that way. And so that's, that's but when he's always revealed that we can be, we can um, be glad with exceeding joy. Bishop? Yes. Is, isn't it that, you know, in a sense, when we suffer well, we're we're joining in Christ's narrative of suffering. Our narrative is joined to his narrative and suffering. So there's meaning there. It's not this, you know, meaningless suffering, but that That's right. we are joined to him. Is how and, the one thing I would highlight, I think your, your question or your comment there, Connie, highlighted me, so it's very important. This does not make it easy. It's one reason that the Psalms have always been at the heart of the church's spirituality. Because um, if, you read, if you pray the Psalms, they are agonizing cries to God in the midst of the struggle of life. They are faithful because um, and this, this is something that might, um, like, like with Job, Sometimes the perspective of actually our Western idea of faith, we might say, well, Job wasn't David was complaining. But what Job was doing is through all he suffered, he was holding on to his prayer to God, waiting for God to come. Mm -hmm. And so I want to make sure that as we talk about suffering well, 
I would not communicate any idea that suffering well means it's easy, that, that it doesn't really hurt, that, that it, um, because that's, I think that's the problem that, that, that torpedoes it, is the idea that, yeah, Christ with you, it's all right. Well, no, Christ, it's not all right. Christ is with me, so I have the hope that he, he is working out the new creation through my share of the cross. But while I'm in it, we have to be very important, whatever your share of this is, there'll be, you know, tears and anger and agony and all these things we have to work through in our prayer. That, and that range of human emotions expressed in prayer is part of emotional and spiritual health. And I think what makes people unhealthy is when they try to act as though they aren't there. We call in the language of our spirituality takes this, we call the exiled emotionality. You're not supposed to feel that way, so you act like you don't. But guess what? You part of you still feels that way. And all you're doing is, is, is um, exiling parts of your experience, and that means they'll never get healed. That, that if something has made us sad or angry or resentful, we have to fit that that was our legitimate emotional response to that thing. We have to bring that into our prayer, experience what it meant to feel that, and then um, experience grace, Christ's what's God, what's Christ going to do in as we see how we can work in it. Uh, we can experience his power of healing and, and, and hope. We can also begin to let go and forgive because we'll, we're choosing to move forward in Christ, in the kingdom, rather than hold on to bitterness. And But this is what, when we talk about, for example, trauma healing, and trauma is really a spectrum. Trauma is any experience where it was so emotionally overwhelming that you couldn't feel how you felt in that moment. <clears throat> so that's what happens in, in the PTSD environments, whether it be assault or battlefield, and the extreme ones. Um, a soldier who's just seen his platoon die cannot break down and mourn because he's got to get off the field. He's got to, there's stuff they have to do. But this is an experiential part of him. And eventually he's going to have to enter into the mourning that pertains to that, or it won't be integrated and it won't be healthy. But in, in much lesser ways, this also is how the spiritual life plays itself out. We all have emotional burden. We just we just push it aside. And this is often embedded in our understanding of the church. You know, we should be happy, yeah. good, and we don't want to hear. Oh, you're oh, you're sad. Okay, we want to fix it real quickly. Well, Jesus won, don't you know? Yeah, <laughs> Jesus won. Yeah, and and I think it's really important here. So people can be sad. It's okay to be sad for an extended season of time. You might be in a season of six months, a year plus of just kind of mourning something. You sit in your faith in prayer. You don't disbelieve that God is there, but you have this emotionality that, that, is, that is right. And, and what will eventually lead to the joy, to the renewal of the joy, is the real healing. As that real healing uh, is applied to, you, to your real experience, then you can move forward. When you don't bring your real experience into the space of your prayer, what you get is a faux healing. Oh, it's all better, but it, but it, but you're. It's like going out and having a, a, a you're getting getting shot and having a bullet in your body. Then you go to doctors. Well, just clean this up. Use some painkillers. Okay, it's all good now. And you're like, well, yeah. I mean, but but the painkiller, and this is the thing. The painkiller, if you go in, is bandaged. You put some antiseptic. You might feel just fine mm -hmm. that day. That day. But you still got a bullet there. Mm -hmm. is still is still there, and this is what happens when we don't really work through our experiences and, and validate our own experience of our own life. So, I back to the to the text here. I just want to make sure we understand that we're talking about suffering faithfully. This is not easy. We have martyrs on the calendar. We have people today who are suffering. Even you know, it's, I know I know every you know I know, know a lot about the stories we have in this class. There's a lot going on. It's not easy, right? But Christ is with us in it, and it's it's um, 
that makes it, that means we have joy in the middle of it, which is the quintessential New Testament perspective. Okay. So, if you are, uh, so you can be glad, we can be glad when we suffer faithfully, when he is revealed, we'll be vindicated. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory of God rests upon you. So, if our identity as Christians gets us opposition, that puts us, again, in the story of Christ, who himself was opposed for being him. <laughs> he was, he was, he was condemned for being, uh, for, for being the king of the Jews. <laughs> on their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. Be okay with that. And that's why, the one thing I think that's significant here is when we haven't dealt with some of our own resentments and, and disappointments, they tend to sneak out in needing to always fight for ourselves in every moment. And what, you know, I would get, you know, and, and that's not the right battle. That, that's, so we want to, whatever it means to fight for Christ in the moment, it means, listen, we're talking about the ideal case here. We all get defensive. We all do it not so well sometimes. Let's come back to our prayer was I not so well. We'll try it again. But if we at least know what it is, we get what, what it is. So, so um, when, when we have unresolved things in our lives, we just sneak out and we think we're fighting for Jesus, but we're actually fighting for the fact that, you know, there's something else coming into the situation. He says in verse 15, Let none of you suffer as a murderer. This is an interesting list. A murderer, um, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. It's interesting the list there because the first two are criminal offenses. Mm -hmm. Murderer, a thief, uh, an evildoer, uh, uh, what, what we call the, the in the King James the malefactor, the, the, uh, um, but the fourth one, the busybody in other people's business, is actually related to the to the word for bishop, which is episkopos, <laughs> and this has a, a prefix. I'm no Greek expert, but it it means you're over, you know, it means overseeing, and you're like over, you're getting involved in everyone's stuff, <laughs> and like you're 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 over intrusive, and then and then people are. You're suffering because people are like, who the hell are you? <laughs> ah, well, nobody appreciates me. It's like, so that's what he means here. Like, you know, don't, don't, if you're suffering for that. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Let him glorify God in this manner. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Quote from Proverbs. Um, when it talks about judgment beginning with the household of God, um, I think there's a larger principle involved in this that can relate very well to Lent. Jesus was, was led by the Spirit in the wilderness to be tested. And um, there's a relationship of the idea of testing to the idea of being judged. You're being tested. Jesus was tested to see what the character was here. All that judge to see okay, what's, what's here. So when he says that judgment begins with the household of God, part of the point of our fiery trials is to reveal our character, and that's the beginning of, of, of not judgment going to heaven, going to hell, but it's, 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 it's revealing and developing our character. And it begins here, and we're saved through this process of, of having the faith that's in us revealed. Um, Versus, he says, what will become of the ungodly and, and, and the sinner? So if we're wrestling through this with difficulty, the person who does not know Christ, when they 
encounter these things, we understand is, is why they're overwhelming. Didn't we, in, in morning prayer just a couple of days ago, have something about he chastises those he loves? And right. hopefully corrects us. Well, as we've talked about is that, that the chastisement there is, he says, is for children. But we so are. you can only be chastised if you belong to, to God as a child of the Father. Punishment, and this is, this is this, so we, we can only actually be revealed as God's true children if we are. And this gets back to what Diane was talking about with the Spirit dwelling within us, and therefore we... We have the grace and the and the and the power to face our sufferings in this way. That's what enables us. So so the chastisement will be the correcting the ways in which maybe we don't exactly follow the spirit in us, but maybe we follow a little bit more of the flesh. We have to come back and like learn to get rid of that. So yeah, that's right. Therefore Verse 19, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Because we're living in this story where our lives are oriented towards that ultimate verdict. The chapter 5 shifts now a little bit. The elders who are among you I exhort. Uh, now, elder is, the Greek word is presbyter, which eventually morphed in the history of the church into the word priest. Uh, so that's the sort of office. Um, and there's um, a little bit of <clears throat> uncertainty, <clears throat> though we can definitely see it historically, how in the New Testament there were presbyters and, and deacons and then there's bishops are mentioned, but the distinction between the elder and the bishop is not entirely clear. Actually, in the New Testament, you have four distinct offices. You have apostles, then you have people who are called bishops, then you have elders, and you have deacons. Um, by the early second century, the year 110, you can see this in the writings of St. Ignatius of Antioch, who wrote, seven letters to the churches, you have this threefold order of bishops, presbyters, and deacons. And it seems like when the apostles died out, um, those whom they specifically appointed to be the person in the place became the bishop, and then you had elders along with the bishop. We should remember in Peter's setting that most of these churches are going to be very small. So it's not a large organization. Um, anyway. So Peter calls himself a fellow elder, a witness to the sufferings of Christ. And that would be a witness um, and also partake of the glory would be revealed. So he's, again, restating the narrative we just covered in the last chapter. And the witness there would be both that... Um, <clears throat> He saw the suffering of Christ, and also that he participates in it. So our witness to the suffering of Christ is in our own lives. As we faithfully endure, we're bearing witness to Christ through our own. That's how we, we become witnesses. Others can see that, that, that testimony. The exhortation that uh, in verse 2 is shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers. And that's the word, that it's not here um, translated as bishop, but it is the word episkopos, overseer. Not by compulsion, but willingly. Not because somebody told you had to, and if you don't, you're going to get in trouble, but because you've given a stewardship. Um, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. Um, the dishonest gain would be maybe some temptations to, um, I don't know, use the office for something uh, untowardly, like Simon Magus in Acts 
asked the disciples they could, you know, he could buy the gift of laying on of hands mm. with some money. Uh, you know, you might, um, uh, there's not a lot of, um, you know, in our, um, some of our canonical ordination oaths, you have to make a, a promise against simony, which no. comes with Simon Magus that you won't know. You know, I, I, in our particular remnant organization, you know, body of the church, there's not a lot of dishonest gain to be tempted with. Yeah. But um, but in the but history of the church, the history of the church, it definitely was, yeah. and that was actually a big a big um, yeah. thing in the Reformation, where actually bishops would be appointed over dioceses, in, and and a certain income would be connected to it. And they never actually had to go to the diocese and do any work; they just connected the, collected the money. So there was some of that kind of stuff. Yeah. Not as being lords over those entrusted to you. But as examples to the flock, so you, you um, Jesus spoke as one had an authority, and I think ministry has a certain authority in the spirit. But it's not authoritarian. It's not. Um, I, I've known some people in church who only seem to know the military metaphor <laughs> and not the pastoral metaphor. And when the chief shepherd appears, you receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Um, we will um, remember in this section the appearance of the risen Christ to Peter by the Sea of Galilee. Peter who had fallen away and Jesus, you love me, you feed my sheep and my flock. That Peter's given exhortation he himself received. And I would say that Peter's own, when he talks about not being lords, Peter's own, the, the revelation to Peter of his own weakness, I've certainly made him a better shepherd. Because you, you, you don't become self-righteous when you know that what it is that the human weakness comes from. <clears throat> Verse 5. Likewise, you younger people submit yourselves to your elders. Elders here can be a, a formal office, and, or it's just people who are. Um, uh, and the idea, the idea of, of submissive, which is, we talked about this in government and family. Submission um, is a virtue born of faith. And, and the peace we have with God. And the opposite of so submitting is like fulfilling your proper role, giving the proper justice to each person in the system. And so uh, the justice given to elders is respect. Because like God, they came before us. And so we honor that. Um, we should be aware in our culture that that's really been undermined in the youth culture, and it really uh, undermines a, a Christian perspective. Um, but justice means giving the due, and it is faith that gives us the power to do that, because the opposite of submission is rebellion. If, if we're not willing to yield to the structures that God has put in place with, with a kind of a will, you know, joy in Christ, it's usually because I'm, I'm fighting some battle I'm not aware of, and I'm always picking a fight with the authority. Now, this doesn't mean, of course, that you can't um, object to something someone in authority did if it was unjust, but there are righteous ways to do that and oppose. And and it would mean you don't every time somebody who is over you does something that's not right does not cause for a full scale rebellion. <laughs> <laughs> and just remembering also that um, you don't want every time you do something wrong, all those under you to fully rebel against you. So that's that's kind of. Uh, <clears throat> 
Well, it's, it's interesting. I, I thought about this with, um, you know, we move on to King David, who did not um, kill Saul in two opportunities, yeah. Yeah. which is laudable. I, I, I think he's also aware that if he, as, an, as this aspirant to the throne, would take in his own hand to kill and rebel against the current king, if we went forward in history, some other aspirant, he would have set the example that now, yeah, yeah. you too, and this is actually what happens in these sort of militant countries where one junta takes over the next with the next coup because there is no submission to the, to, to the, to the structure that, that brings peace. <clears throat> yes, all of you be submissive one to another and be clothed with humility. So the grace of humility allows us to submit because I'm not fighting the battle. I can say, okay, let's do it your way. And most of us, if you practice humility, as you practice it, well, maybe you're not as much like I am, naturally rebellious and angry. But if you usually have an impulse, an impulse to say, and you have to catch yourself and say, all right, let's do it your way. I have, let's go. I have found when just at the bridge table, people will um, try to convince somebody that they did wrong. If you just say, okay, yeah. Then they start apologizing for their viewpoint yeah. and saying, well, maybe your way was better. Well, this also, I would say something about this witness, um, because if we, if we develop humility, which is the ability not to fight my personal battle in every relationship, it does bear witness because someone, when they say, well, I want to do this, they're bringing their thing. When you don't, when you are aware of your thing, but you let it go, see how it gets to it your way, they kind of, they, there's, a, there's a kind of confrontation like, oh, I guess I was being kind of weird. But if you say, wow, we do that one, then, then you have to knock that drag out where, well, you were wrong, I was wrong. <laughs> so there is, it, there is a way in which, um, it's a little bit the way in which um, we're convicted on Good Friday. Because we come, we see our Lord, and rather than nailing us each, yeah. he's there dying for us. Yeah. It's like, uh, oh. And so when we can be the presence of Christ, and give ourselves and be present as him and not um, respond in kind, we can become a redemptive presence that, that allows people to be more aware of their own disorder and give some chance there might actually be some change of heart and repentance. We're responding to the evil with the good and there's some possibility that some people might be influenced by the good, so the, the leaven is going the other direction. Respond to the evil with the evil, which is continuing on the pattern that characterizes the world. So this is all about hum our humility, practicing humility, which is really to be, it's a confident virtue, because you have to be um, confident in God and comfortable with yourself. To, to not demand vindication in this moment. You know, Mary, behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it enemy according to thy word. To submit to becoming, you know, a, to, to a, a condition that's going to have all kinds of gossip about it, that takes someone very strong. And this is why I think we, in our culture, think submission is a weak virtue. It's actually rebellion is the weak virtue because you're actually playing out your own conflict in the midst of, of, of all the other stuff. So God, so God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, which means that as we suffer with Christ, we're humbling ourselves under God's hand with the idea he, he intends to bring us through this to a place of exaltation. But we wait on him. I love the verse from Isaiah that we had sometime recently. Therefore, uh, uh, it says, he will wait that he may be gracious to you. And then the end of the verse is, therefore, blessed are all those who wait for him. Mm -hmm. And it's impatient sometimes it speeds up that process of waiting.
So casting your care on him for he cares for you. And your care is your, your prayer. You're processing all your feeling in relationship to God in your prayer. Verse 8. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Now, um, I think this verse here, I surmise that Peter um, is thinking about Job. Mm. Anyone idea why? The devil walks about as a roaring lion, seeking to be devoured. Do you remember how the adversary, because he says your adversary, and he's called, he's called the adversary in, in Job. Well, how is the Satan portrayed in Job? When he comes before God, what's, what's he say about himself? He's been walking to and fro. <laughs> yeah, he said, God says, where have you been? So I've been roaming about the earth. Yeah, yeah. And, and, so he, and so he's going to try to devour Job. So he, this idea of the devil looking for an opportunity. And I would say that for us getting back to that previous passage about humility, when we are angry, I didn't want to battle. <laughs> Yeah, I got you. Gotcha. Uh, the devil comes in, he'll pick you back on that. Yeah, you were offended. I was bad. You should, you should nail him. So we understand that that when we, the devil roams about, he's looking for opportunity. And prayer, um, we want to practice what we can call watchfulness. And this is. Um, through prayerfulness, when we see that sort of anger coming or impatience or resentment or that the, 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 the gift of watchfulness is the ability to see it and therefore manage it, I see that. And if you can see it and witness it, you don't have to speak or act while you're feeling it. Then you can process through it and act. But if you are just reactive, what we call reactive, and the minute anyone offends you, you have to, you you're, you're, you you become in a, a sort of a victim of your of your of that kind of intense emotionality, and that's what I think that the opportunity the devil takes. Um, so he walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And it's interesting, Peter would also know that. Uh, Peter, uh, Satan has asked for you, they may sift you as wheat. But I prayed for you, and so when you are converted, strengthen your brethren. Peter remembers, because he, he, was, he was not devoured, but he was bitten. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Those common resisting of the evil one. But may the God of all grace has called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. After you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Um, I, I also I think this exam this this pattern that Peter's highlighting, that you you have this tense trial, the devil looking for opportunity. But hold on, um, and after you've suffered a while, God will settle you, comes out of the gospel for this Sunday, first Sunday in Lent, the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Because what happens after the temptations? The devil is part of what happened. The angels. Angels can minister to him. So this tells us that God does not allow temptation to persist indefinitely, but there's an acute season to hold on to after which will typically have some relief. That's kind of the, the horizon of, of it. And he has some closing uh, readings. By Sylvanus, our faithful brothers, I consider him. I have written to you briefly. <clears throat> and some think this might be the Silas of Acts. Hmm. So in other words, you see Peter's letter and send it to uh, by his hand. Exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. Verse 13, She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you. And so does Mark, my son. 
We should note that Mark, his, his son, is euphemistic here of an adopted spiritual son, most likely. And we know that this Mark probably is the one uh, who is the cause of a great battle between Paul and Barnabas in Acts, because Mark had abandoned them on a missionary journey, and Paul did not want to take him again. And therefore, they actually almost came to blows and separated. So it appears, though, in, the history, in looking through the New Testament epistles, that Mark had a change of heart, came back, and even that Paul's attitude towards him softened. And so he becomes, but by tradition, this is the Mark who is, who, who, whose gospel communicates the witness of Peter. That's what we think about Mark's gospel. The tradition says this is the witness of St. Peter. So Mark, my son, clearly close relationship there. Now, Babylon is, as I think, euphemistic, because he's not really over in Ur of the Chaldees or mm-hmm. modern Iraq. But it would be, Babylon would be where the elect are sort of captive, or the elect live under hostile rule. And so you have the church in Rome that's both uh, under the hostility of the Jewish synagogue and also of their own authorities. We should also note that the same kind of imagery can pertain to the early church and revelation of the Christians in Israel, because they were also underneath hostile authorities. So it's more that captivity uh, and being faithful than it is to geography there. Greet one another with a kiss of love. This would be the sort of formal, you know, the church of Green. You get a lot of areas in the East are much more affectionate that way. Mm-hmm. Kiss in each cheek. And that, incidentally, was probably what, what kind of morphed into the, into the modern liturgical idea of, of the greeting, you know, the kiss of peace. It used to be a kind of a formal, not, I don't mean that the formality didn't betray real affection, but there was a liturgical sense to it. Now it became like everyone run over and say hi to everybody. <laughs> so it's, that's probably, but I'm, what I'm saying to you is that this kiss of peace is probably thinking about the same thing you do in the liturgy. Greet one another that way. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. And a little over, but we finished First Peter. So um, we'll pick up on Second Peter. Got a few weeks of that. I think what we talked about was maybe three weeks of Second Peter, and then maybe we'll towards the end of Lent jump into a, a, a prophet of some sort. So I'm still. We talked last week about having. Um, maybe some prophetic writing to close out Lent with. I'm quite sure how to orient that yet, because there, um, you can go a lot. So I may, I may think about a few passages to deal with, or something like that. Um, all right, let's pray. The Lord bless us and keep us. The Lord make his face to shine upon us and be gracious unto us. The Lord lift up his countenance upon us and give us peace this day and forevermore. Amen. Good to be with you all. Jim, Phyllis, Mimi, Tiny, Elizabeth, Cheryl in two places, Ed, Ruth. He's doing fine. Fine, yes, indeed. I'm trying to describe this behind it. I really thought we'd have to wait five or six months. But he had an appointment. Tuesday. That's why I wasn't. At Mass Tuesday, also. Do you have a doctor's bill? <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, you know, I had so many things planned for that day, and oh. I had to cancel.